0: When we were talking about this retreat when we were looking at all different ways that we could, um, the themes and how we wanted to have this retreat, one of the things that we came up with was rather than give a, a formal Dhamma talk to you, we would invite you into a conversation that Jean and I would have with each other. So, um, So you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs>
1: <laughs> to listen <laughs> to listen in. To
0: listen in. So, you know, when we're looking at this whole question of awakening the body, heart and mind, how how do you experience that in your practice?
1: Meaning the body the awakening of body, heart and mind. Yeah. There's so many ways that that can be experienced or that I experience it in my practice that it's hard to choose even just one to to talk about. So I'll see what happens as I um, let the mind uh, unfold around that question. They're qualities of mind that that develop over time, or that I've seen develop in my practice over time. And I put it that way because they they seem to develop by themselves. Those qualities of heart and mind, such as generosity, Kindness and trusting equanimity. Those qualities appear to develop without my knowing until one day they kind of appear. You know, they'll appear out of, um, seemingly out of the void in response to. Uh, something in life uh, in response to a difficulty or in response to or or as a response to the uh, the meeting of another being and their situation and it it appears to me or it's been my experience that when those qualities appear joy co-arises with them. That there is nothing that needs to be added and nothing that needs to be done in order for joy to arise. And the wonderful thing about that is that the joy arises not because the external circumstances are what I wanted to happen, or because the external circumstances fit some idea that I may have about um, how life should be unfolding. But usually it's because it's a delightful surprise Mm. as to how things are happening. And it doesn't mean that the delight doesn't necessarily come from um, uh, perfect circumstances. And it's funny because when you first, when you just asked me the question, Uh, uh, some lines from Leonard Cohen popped into my mind and the lines are um, ring the bells that still can ring forget your perfect offering there is a crack in everything that's how the light gets in Mm.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: that's how the light gets in and those lines perfectly express what I'm, what I'm saying, that life doesn't unfold perfectly according to my standards of what perfection is. And I've had to kind of give it up, you know, the idea that anything is going to be perfect. Um, and yet so much light gets in. Mm through the cracks, mm-hmm. through those beautiful cracks that um, previously before practice might have been just seen as cracks.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So um, yeah, I think that, that, that it's, it's the cultivation of those qualities of mind and the recognition of um, life's unfolding according to Natural laws that all feels so relaxed, it feels so easeful, it feels joyful and delightful to not have to make anything happen, mm-hmm. which is incredibly unlike me personality wise mm-hmm. right um, it's not the kind of personality I have as uh, having been trained as a lawyer i'm you know, I'm used to trying to make things turn out the way they, I think they need to turn out.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: So it's a, it's, a great, it's a great revelation to be that way.
0: When you speak, I hear an enormous sense of joy, or I resonate with an enormous sense of joy, and it's easy for me to connect with the, what you're talking about, particularly at the level of heart and mind. But can you say more, or how that actually operates in terms of awakening in the body?
2: Hmm.
1: so it doesn't feel as if that, that's a separate thing it doesn't it doesn't feel as if um, body is body in, in in any way shape or form is um, that's that's an interesting pun um, uh, Separate from that joy of the heart, because the the body um, it feels to me as if it's one system. That if there's joy in the heart and joy in the mind, that the body is alive. Mm. There's aliveness in the body, uh, and that whatever um, whatever difficulties may appear in the body. Uh, um, they're not they're not a they're not a factor in a way you know of course the body has to be taken care of that's not it's not the question or the issue but um, if the if the mind and heart are at ease so is the body it's not it's not a separate entity that's doing its own thing while the mind is doing its thing they're they're informing each other mm-hmm. um, so that if I know the aliveness of the body and I'm grounded in the body, wherever I'm, if I'm grounded Mm
2: -hmm.
1: in the body, um, then the mind doesn't have an opportunity to depart in a way. It too is, it's grounded, you know, Mm -hmm. the mind gets grounded in the body. So um, there's a groundedness that happens uh, that creates a tremendous amount of joy uh, because we're not flying all over the the universe, you know, trying to chase something that uh, doesn't exist. We're we're actually um, finding our joy through whatever appears in the body.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So, do you experience it in the same way, or in a similar way?
0: I yeah, I think I would articulate it differently. Mm-hmm. I think the way I would. I'm ar- not surprised. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think the way I would try and articulate it if I can come up with a languaging that's a, that's accurate, is is that the um, like when we're looking at the foundations of mindfulness, you know, I can see I can bring my attention to my physical body, but I can also see that thoughts and emotions and moods and qualities of mind have a a residue in the body, okay? And I can also see that my body and what's happening with body and how I'm relating to that has, a, a, has an effect on the heart and on mm-hmm. the mind. Mm-hmm. So in this way, they're, they're not, as you were saying, they're not separate and distinct things. They're, there's, they're porous membranes where there's an enormous amount of, of interchange and flow between. And you know, there's been plenty of times when I've had a physical pain in my body that was physical but in fact, what it was, was a resistance, a mental resistance mm. that was manifesting as a physical
2: mm-hmm.
0: kind of sensation. So for me, when I look at like the qualities of the joy of awakening and how I experience it as body, when my system is um, aligned, when there's congruence, when there's a sense of being present with what is and able to move between the different foundations of the body the heart and the awareness which is able to know and receive or conceptualize these in terms of frameworks of Dhamma. The way my body experiences that is a kind of openness and flow which is, which is different from just absence of physical pain, yeah? So the, I don't know that I would say that I, what I'm saying is different, <laughs> it's just that I'm articulating it just slightly. Sure. S- slightly differently, yeah.
1: yeah. So I'm wondering when you said that, when you said that, um, you know, if there's resistance <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the mind, then it appears in the body.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: How do you know it's the same thing? How do you know that it's the actual specific resistance in the mind that's producing this specific resistance in the body?
0: I only know that from uh, experiment. From being able, when I actually can locate the resistance in the mind and allow it to release, Mm -hmm. and then the pain disappears. Ah. Mm -hmm. You know, so initially, physical pain appears like just physical pain and you can't differentiate Mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. But when you've had many experiences of actually locating the mental resistance. And then allowing that to release, mm-hmm. and then voop, it's mm-hmm. gone. Mm-hmm. Then one makes a connection. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but otherwise, it's I wasn't able initially to figure out mm-hmm. what the difference was. But what I have been able to l- learn is, is, is that there's a way of attending to the physical body that leads me more towards understanding where resistance is actually on a mental level. Mm-hmm. And so that's one of the ways in which the body has become a, just a very, a, a tremendous ally. You know, it's not like, it's not like, you know, one just keeps it together because it's a, it's, it's a good idea. <laughs> you know, it's like.
1: It, Although it is. It is a good idea.
0: <laughs> 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 but it, there's, there's um. There's a different quality of release when it takes place at the level of the physical body, mm-hmm. than when it's just taking place at the level of the heart and the mind. You know, so like for example, um, so the joy of letting go. You mm-hmm. know, there's the different kinds of letting go that one can experience. But when the body really lets go, mm-hmm. you know, that's a that's a another level of like settling back into one's own skin and. Really understanding what that means, mm. yeah. Mm. Beautiful. Yeah. I mean, we can, we can, uh, we can see that we can be attached and have an understanding of our attachment as a mental experience, but when we can feel the attachment as a body experience, and then when it releases there, mm-hmm. there's something. Um, I find it more trustworthy.
1: So is there a part of your body that you find um, shows up where those kinds of tight tightenings or holdings or tensions show up most in your body? I don't know that it's,
0: I don't know that it's a place, but it's, it's, I think what's happened over the years is more a recognition of a quality of feeling that appears
1: that I it's a little bit easier to see Mm
2: -hmm. Mm -hmm.
1: so this afternoon when we were talking about uh, the eight precepts when we were when we were meeting with eight precepts people someone asked a question about um, awareness of awareness and that feeling of having jumped off the edge of the world and um, you responded by talking about uh, uh, feeling groundlessness as something positive uh, in the sense that uh, groundlessness means that if you're, if you're feeling as if you're kind of free-falling or free-floating free or you've jumped into an abyss and there's nothing to hold you, that it can be interpreted as there's nothing to hold you right because there's no ground or it can be interpreted as there's nothing against you know that you'll hit when you fall if there's no ground so can you say a little bit more about that Um, because I think it might be interesting to hear um, whether that's whether you see that as uh, an understanding that's a, a, um, a result of awakening or if that's um, something else. So uh,
0: in relating that to my own personal experience, you know, there have been a, a number of, of, of journeys through processes of disillusion where one is um, uh, like the sense in which one defines oneself it's like no longer has a foothold. Mm. And when that disillusion is happening, there's initially quite a lot of agitation. And in my experience, you know, I I fought it. You know, I was just like, don't want to go there, you know. But as is often the case, it's like it wasn't up to me whether I went there or not (laughs) went there. And I didn't find any magic wand or fairy godmothers to make it go away, Mm -hmm. you know. And I couldn't think myself out of it so it was what was happening. And when I realized there was nothing that I could do to avoid it, I, I mean, I tried everything to resist and then realized there was no strategy that was going to prevent me from dealing with it, then I softened around the resistance. And then when I softened around the resistance, then there was the, the gradual uh, feeling of of disillusion in the sense that there was no identity that I could point to or look at that <coughs> Had any real relevance. And that was really pretty much across the board. And the, the initial experience of terror was also partly the relationship to the resistance to feeling that. You know, that, that sense of that's not something that I want to experience, I don't want to go there. Yeah. But as the resistance started to shift, and I realized that it, it wasn't as if I was physically ungrounded, I was physically grounded. So in that situation, I would check quite regularly to see how I was in terms of my own physical energy and whether they were cohesive or not. Because when it's not cohesive, then you've got other problems. You actually need to take quite a lot of care. Yeah. But the energy was cohesive, even though I couldn't find a boundary or a label or an identity that could map it. And so then in that, there was a gradual sense of resting. And what I was, I wasn't resting in an identity. In, in a, I wasn't resting in a, I was resting in groundlessness.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah. And the resting in groundlessness was the right environment to allow the disillusion to come to fruition or fulfillment in terms of not taking myself to be any particular thing. And there was tremendous sense of um, spaciousness and peacefulness that emerged. And then what emerged from that was a clarity of um, the inseparability between the, the divine, unconditioned love as being the essence of what's there when everything else falls away. Mm. And that unconditioned love wasn't separate from the pain of the world, Mm. but it was embedded in it. Mm. It was through it that I felt it. Mm. And that experience was... um, illuminated and clarified and dispelled a lot of darkness. Just seeing that actually when everything falls away, that that quality of love is what's left.
1: Does that inform uh, the way now that you navigate emotional issues?
0: I think the habits that we have are really strong and <laughs> you know I've got to give them the credit and no It was matter, a trick question Yeah and no matter how much I've experienced fear and fearlessness I still experience fear you know, so, you know, stuff comes up and there's resistance that I have to meet, th- meet it again and again as if it's the first time, even though I have been through and understand there is a journey through, yeah. But I think what happens is, is that because there's like somewhere deep in my bones, I know,
2: yeah.
0: you know, then that gives me the, both the willingness as well as the understanding that the way out is in,
2: mm-hmm.
0: you know. The way through all of it is into it and embracing and allowing and receiving and meeting the resistance as it arises and then allowing what emerges when it releases. So ground and groundlessness is an interesting paradox, you know, mm-hmm. because the more I'm able to feel grounded in my physical body, the more comfortable I am with being groundless. And, you know, the transition that I'm in now and is just tremendous uncertainty. I mean, there's uncertainty just about in every single direction of my life. But there's a sense of, well, that's all right. That's what's happening. And this is what needs to be navigated. And there's a confidence that the clarity will emerge when it's ready, you know? It will, it will do what it needs to do. But the preparation or the, the ability to tolerate the groundlessness is what um, makes it possible to navigate, I think, this level of uncertainty without it being more agitating.
1: But what strikes me as you talk about that, what just struck me now, is that that level, there are degrees of uncertainty, that's for sure. And yet, our lives are always uncertain. That there's never, I can't remember ever a time in which everything in my life was certain, ever. And even as I grow older, I always thought that, you know, as you get older, things become more and more settled and more and more certain and, you know, then you die completely <laughs> certain, <right>? you, know? <laughs> you know? But then as, as, I, as I grow older, um, I see that it really never—it never really changes, and, and you know the the, the the nature of it doesn't change. You know the facts may change, mm. but that in fact, um, uh, even when I think things are certain,
2: mm.
1: you know, the wind comes along and you know just shuffles all the papers, mm. and then everything gets uncertain again. And so it's and so in a way. Uh, the ability to live with groundlessness, the, um, the understanding of groundlessness, and, and the understanding of um, the essential nature of groundlessness, and the, uh, the, the truth of it, is an ally in navigating uh, the, the whole uncertain nature of life. Mm-hmm. I mean, we don't know how we know we're going to die. That's prob- probably about the only... Even taxes aren't certain, but certainly death is certain, <laughs> right? And the, uh, the only thing we don't know is when. Right. And so even that's uncertain, yeah. even a, you know, a part of it is uncertain. So I, I wonder to what extent it's, it would, it's possible to, um, to, to live a life where uncertainty becomes our friend rather than the enemy. Because mm-hmm. I, I think we tend to um, believe that as soon as we get it all, you know, all the ducks in a row, and we get it all sort of, you know, figured out, that we'll be happy. And yet, you know, when I, when I listen to you, what I hear is a tremendous amount of joy, even in a period of deep uncertainty, mm-hmm. and even in a period of transition where you have no idea what will happen next right mm-hmm. and it's kind of exciting but it's you know we could do with that a lot of that excitement mm. sometimes so um, so so for me that's a uh, it's 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 a wonderful um, model mm. of navigating uh, every moment of life that's right every moment of life
0: But I think that's where the kind of aliveness and excitement of the practice comes. you know, Because what's happening is is there's a shift from relating to things about the way they should be Mm -hmm. and then just being with things as they are. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. the being with things as they are is uncovering this exquisite but very raw uncertainty, Mm -hmm. which permeates every aspect of our lives. It's just that the stability that we tend to have around us covers the reality. Which is that it's actually always been uncertain. Mm-hmm. And that just that there's only sometimes where we are going through these massive transitions where so many things are up in the air, where the reality of the uncertainty is actually very visible and very
1: apparent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, you know, the experience that you were talking about um, of discovering groundlessness or, or having no place to rest and having no identity, having all, uh, all markers of, identity fall away and having absolutely no place to rest but in in groundlessness. Um, (laughs) In a way, it what that experience exposes is that there is no stability. Mm -hmm. Right? That there never was any stability, that the stability that we think we have or that we are. I mean, even we even know that who we are is changing as you and I sit here. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not the same person either of us was when we started this conversation because we now have different information than, than we had in the beginning. So everything is changing, and that that experience of groundlessness is the exposer of the st- instability that we are living with, moment to moment to moment to moment. But our delusion. Uh, covers it up, where it, it's covered up by these veils of perception and, and, and in a way, I'm always curious as to uh, how that kind of happened in our evolution, you know, that, and, and when I think about it, when I reflect on it, I think, oh, it must be that th- we couldn't do it any other way, because to live with that raw instability constantly exposed would be destabilizing. <laughs> Do you know what I mean?
0: Yes, but I also think what you're talking about, there's a point which also needs to be um, added in here, which for me, a, a whole huge part of being able to relax into groundlessness was has also been about picking up developmental pieces and working with them. Mm. So on an absolute level, what we're talking about is true, yeah? But on a relative level, what's needed sometimes is stability and, and ground in a, in, a, in a tangible way. And so part of my own journey has been the, the requirement to navigate, when is it helpful to actually relax into a groundlessness? And when is it helpful to actually feel more ground? You know, to actually get a feeling of, how do I work with some of the stuff in my body? How do I get a handle on some of these things that are going on that I'm not clear about? They're operating through me, but I'm not actually clear about what's going on. I see the effect, but I don't actually see the mechanism. And so these things to me have been in, in um, support of one another. The more that I've been able to do this work on a relative world, a relative level of get more ground, the more that I've been able to see my developmental weaknesses and strengthen them in tangible ways, where I actually have more boundaries, I know more who I am, I know how my energies flow, I know what my identity is, then that gives me the context and the ground Mm -hmm. for letting it go. Mm -hmm. But what's helpful, or it's not helpful, is to think that that sense of groundlessness is the thing that is going to cover and take care of it all. Mm
2: -hmm.
0: And that's something that we see happening a lot in spiritual communities in the monasteries. People come who are actually very fragile. Mm -hmm. They don't have a cohesive sense of who they are. Mm -hmm. And they think, you know, Anatta, I'm already three-quarters there, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) And it's like, no, you Mm -hmm, aren't. You mm -hmm, know, it's like, mm -hmm. you know, what you need is to rake leaves and to chop potatoes and to talk to people and to draw. You don't need to be in the meditation hall, you know? Mm -hmm. So to be able to differentiate what's actually needed at a particular time, both in relationship with friends and students and community, but also for oneself. Mm-hmm. Like there's times it's just not helpful to meditate in the classic formal sense, mm-hmm. and to know when that is, and to really respect
1: that.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: It's like Ramdas saying, saying, uh, in order to be nobody, you have to be somebody first.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: So this journey of being somebody and being nobody, I don't know that one is sequential, that you have to be a somebody first entirely, completely, <laughs> before you can learn a little bit about being a nobody. Uh-huh. But they certainly are uh-huh. a co-emergent, you know, the sense that they, they support one another. There's something that happens together, you know. Mm-hmm. And, uh,
1: and, uh, and I think what happens also in, in many spiritual communities that I've, I've known and, and been in, is that this, this idea of the, the absolute and groundlessness and selflessness uh, is used a lot of the time as a bypass for a, a way of not working with those critical issues in the, that, that create a lot of suffering in, in the relative world.
0: So can you give an example of that?
1: Yeah. Um, We have, um, as you know, I'm I'm a, a guiding teacher and president of the board of New York Insight, and we uh, we have in our in in the Vipassana community, um, there is uh, a, a, a real lack of diversity. And uh, so we have been trying to address uh, many of the issues around that. You know, there's racism in our culture. And uh, that racism uh, pervades even our spiritual communities. And so we've been trying to address uh, many of the issues that uh, arise or, or that cause the community to be so undiverse, right? And so one of the things that, uh, one of the ways in which we were addressing it is by starting people of color retreats at IMS, at New York Inside Spirit Rock, at different, place, different centers around the country. And what we discovered is when we do that, uh, people show up to our centers that, Have never shown up before, and there are a variety of reasons for that. One is that um, it's it's very hard to be a person of color, the only person of color in a in a room of people of non-color. And uh, I certainly know that because for many years when I when I practice and and go to different centers, I'd often be just be the only person of color. And when we investigated it, it turned out that people didn't feel safe, and you know there were a lot of ways in which the centers, unconsciously, um, even though they were using language of welcoming, they were not being welcoming mm-hmm. in their policies and in the way they did registrations and all kinds of ways. And so we started these people of color retreats, and, and it's making a, a big difference in terms of Uh, participation by communities that hadn't participated before in our centers. And I have a friend on the board of New York Insight who has a very, um, he he has a, he's Johnny OneNote about that. Every time the issue arises, he says, what's the problem? We're all one, right? Why are people separating themselves? with respect to race? Why are people separating themselves with respect to anything? We're all one. And, and it's almost like a way of um, shutting down the conversation, right? It's a way of bypassing the real pain that people experience. It's bypassing uh, the really hard work that needs to be done to first discover the suffering I'm going to talk about the Four Noble Truths, to discover the suffering,
2: mm-hmm.
1: to discover the cause of that suffering, mm-hmm. to discover the ending of that suffering and the path to the ending of that suffering. That if we're, not, um, if we're not conscious on a relative level, as you're saying, then there's a real danger of bypassing all of that and not investigating um, where there is suffering how it came to be, how we can be instrumental in its ending, and what needs to be done. So um, that's, one, that's one example. So in these kinds of
0: situations, there's often reasons or mechanisms that support a person being invested in the transcendent at the expense of being in contact with the relative. Mm-hmm. In this situation, would you have any insight what that might be?
1: I think um, I think there's, there's fear. Uh, I think that there's certain uh, triggers that we have, spiritually and emotionally, uh, places that we don't want to go, parts of ourselves that are hidden, parts of ourselves that um, are very painful to see. And, uh, and so the, the organism, because it knows How painful those places can be will do anything anything to avoid having to go there so um, it's it's ironic because you know one thinks that well it's a it's a spiritual community or it's a mindful community never mind spiritual mindful Uh, so of course everybody's doing their work and everybody is you know, paying attention to what's arising, and everybody is paying attention to what's being uh, contributed to the field of awareness. But of course we're human, right? And so even though uh, we know and we understand to a limited extent that uh, mindfulness is healing, and that awareness, that when we turn to what is unconscious, and through our awareness, we make it conscious. We know that that's healing. Yet many times, the, um, the overriding fear of feeling the pain can cut through that wisdom. And so that wisdom gets undermined. And that's why I said in the beginning, um, I trust equanimity deeply. And that trust in equanimity makes me incredibly joyful. Because it's, it's the practice of equanimity, the, the, um, the cultivation of equanimity, where we are uh, knowing what's difficult, we are knowing what's painful, and yet we have the strength and the, um, the, the depth and the strength to hold it, and to hold it in such a way that um, we, we can, in, and to hold it in a way of balance, so that we're neither, uh, we're, we're not pushing and we're not pulling, but we're holding it in balance. And the, uh, when that arrives in one's experience, it's an incredibly joyful, joyful moment. It's an incredibly joyful experience, because we're no longer dependent on anything out there to hold our balance or to to contribute to our joy. It's it's all arising from the internal workings of our relationship to what's happening.
0: So when I'm listening to you speaking, I'm, I'm hearing it as the exquisite kind of freedom that can come from the practice. Mm-hmm. And when there's a commitment to waking up, the kind of the unfolding that will allow a person to do this kind of inner work, which though one <laughs> needs to navigate territory, which is often very painful, the result of, of contacting it and allowing it to release is so much more um, peaceful mm-hmm. that, the, that the effort is certainly worth the while. Mm-hmm. But what is also interesting for me is in communities. Yeah. There's a whole collection of individual people. And different people are in different processes with that. And when you're dealing with things like issues of race, you're not just dealing with it on an individual level. You're dealing with it in a collective field. And so then how does a group um, then generate the kind of motivation or interest as a group to do the work that's needed to open up to the painful stuff when different people are at different places with all of this?
1: Mm. This is a great question. I'm not sure I have the answer. Mm -hmm. Um, Because because I I think that what happens is um, there's a recognition that uh, there are a couple of recognitions. One recognition is that any community that excludes any part of the larger community um, is incomplete. And I've certainly seen that happen uh, in the different centers as we've done some of that work, uh, where it the the realization dawns slowly, of course, but it does dawn that it's like that that if we are excluding any uh, aspect of the community—it's like cutting off a limb. Our, so you know, because our bodies and our minds are not different than the whole community. So we are we temp—we're—we're holograms. You know, any small piece of the community <coughs> is a is a hologram for the whole community, right? So we take a little piece of the community, we take one person, and they'll have the—you know—they'll be the embodiment of. All of the views and opinions and uh, emotions and psychological complexes, etc., of the community. So, uh, as we begin to do the work, as as we begin to introduce the the idea or the understanding that oh, something's not right here, um, people begin to get oh, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't feel quite right. It, there's no balance here, and um, as they begin to contemplate that, they understand it's not so much that we're going to go out and get those people to come in, but that we are incomplete as we are. And so, uh, in order to be complete, we have to do the work that's necessary to, um, to, to finish the circle, to complete the circle.
0: So there's an exquisite kind of paradox that emerges because as one is engaged in the practice there's an increasing sense of perfection and yet the perfection illuminates the lack and the lack supports the willingness to do the work for completion to take place. Mm. And this paradox is one of the kind of conundrums which seems to be, you know, what needs to be held in navigating both the practice internally, individually as well as collectively in order for things to move more
1: towards health, inclusivity, and balance. And it is a and it and it is a template for our for our individual work, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's not different from the individual work. It's this, it's exactly the same thing. Mm. So the community work is not different from the individual work. But as you said, or as you hinted by your question, there really is a difficulty. It, it's easier somehow. Well, I'm not sure. I'm, I was about to say that it was easier for an individual to see what needs to be done individually than for a community to see what needs to be done communally. But again, if it's a hologram, it's not true. Mm-hmm. It's, it, what's true is that what is true for the individual is also true for the community. So that if the individuals are having difficulty seeing the work that needs to be done, the community itself will be dysfunctional
2: mm-hmm.
1: because it's made up of the individuals. I'm sure you have some uh, small notion of that. Yeah. small. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? how do you what I mean by that question is, uh, what do you, how do you think uh, what's the best way to? Frame this. Uh, how possible is it for a community to wake up together?
0: <laughs> I think it depends on the commitment of how they got started. And I think it depends on the identity that starts to form around who they are and their journey of doing this. And so um I can't answer that question in absolute. You know how possible it is, but one thing that I can see is is that if the community keeps coming back to the fundamental principles that the community is there in order to support awakening. That that actually is the fundamental reason why they're there, and alongside that needs to be the kind of things that make that happen in terms of place, in terms of requisites, in terms of emotional connectedness and healthier relationships, then all of that will follow in the wake of the initial principle. If what happens is is that the identity of the group starts to take precedence over the principle from which it was originally founded, then what starts to happen is, is there's an interest to protect the identity, no matter what the consequences are to the individuals in the group.
1: And in a way, that's true on an individual level, too, if we bring it down, isn't it? If we try to protect our ad- identity as individuals, that's right. the same kind of trouble happens. That's yes. right.
0: So I think you know, what is needed constantly is a reappraisal of what our bottom line is and what we're here for. Mm. And when we start to see that our bottom line is shifting from the aspiration to awaken to the desire to belong, then when we can see that, that can either help illuminate where we're going and help us get back on track, or at least gives us some explanation of why the community is not able to do the work. Mm -hmm. Because the identity to belong is based around fear Mm
2: -hmm.
0: and inclusion and exclusion. Mm -hmm.
2: Mm -hmm.
0: And the the aspiration to awaken is prepared to negotiate all of those boundaries.
1: So, so it's the aspiration to awaken rather than anger or fear that drives it, and that gives it that the, the chances of success then are, you know, multiplied to the umpteenth power. If the, if, the, uh, if the intention is to awaken, and it's not driven by fear, and it's not driven by anger, then the power... Of, of that community would be considerable.
0: yes, but I also see that you know the way it can work is is that with certain positions of leadership, the power of leadership has a has a occluding ability that there needs to be some kind of a skillful way to have feedback mechanisms that are separate from the power positions mm-hmm. and then and then that it secures the ability to keep awakening is a fundamental principle.
1: Mm -hmm. Well, that brings me to a question that one of the yogis asked today. Um, And I'm not sure I'll be, I don't don't think we have it here, so I'm not sure I'll be able to um, quote it directly or totally accurately. But the sense of it was um, the question of activism and uh, how to how to work to correct injustice uh, if there is no anger. This yogi is, is an activist and she was asking about, um, you know, she said that she sees things that, you know, that make her angry. And that, that, is, a, that is, in a way, the, um, the spur that gets, her to, that gets her going, that gets her to move, that gets her to act against injustice? And how is it possible to have the, uh, the, the energy or the, um, the will or the intention to work, in uh, to, to be an activist, and to work against injustice if we take away the anger?
0: So I think there's many components to that. And one of them is there's a recognition that there's a healthy component that anger uh, brings up in this kind of a context which it illuminates that there is some harm that is happening, and it generates energy to be willing to engage in an activity that either uh, stops or protects or um, gives voice to what is happening. And so particularly in a Buddhist community, we tend to give things like anger and desire like an absolute bad rap, mm-hmm. where it's like you know the whole thing is just like there's nothing about it which is wholesome. But in this particular situation, that needs to be reinvestigated because there is a wholesome quality there. But what one needs to recognize is that any action that is actually coming from anger is going to have a trace of harm connected to it. And so the anger then needs to be purified into the raw and pure power of compassion. And compassion is phenomenally powerful. There's no lack of energy that one can find in compassion, nor is there any sense of, 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 of limitation in the form it can be expressed. You know, so you can see, a, you, know, a, um, uh, you know, a bear protecting her cub, you know, that's ferocious, you know. So there's a kind of fierceness that can come through compassion and the need to protect that can activate an enormous amount of energy. But what can also happen, particularly with stuff around activism and injustice, particularly when the stuff, you know, usually the stuff that gets us going is the stuff that just goes right into our Mm -hmm. hearts. It's the stuff that hurts so deeply, is that there needs to be the willingness to see our own attachment to the anger in terms of solidifying a self that is righteous around a cause that we believe in. And that's painful because it's very humbling to actually do that work. Mm-hmm. You know, it's also very painful to see the way in which this stuff hurts so deeply. Mm. But when we're able to connect the magnitude of our compassion with our willingness to be of most service, that will k- generate the conditions that will help support transforming anger into a pure form of compassion, which then allows us to engage and act in a way where there is no residue. Mm. There's no harm connected mm. to it. Mm. But it's humbling, mm. because the levels to which that we're invested in our own anger mm. is something that is sobering to wake up to. Mm. I remember, I remember, I, it was an anagarika so this was 100 years ago, 20, <laughs> not 100, 20 years ago, 22. And you know, one of the things about the monastic form is, is, is that the monks are not allowed to receive uh, Anjali from uh, anybody other than a monk, okay? So the, this gesture, which is a gesture of respect, they had a limit on who they could receive it from. And I was in an absolute rage. I mean, I was just having a complete tantrum. And I remember walking up and down on my walking path, storming and fuming and having a kind of thing about, this is totally unfair. It's totally unjust. It's outrageous. And, you know, <laughs> it, was, you know that it was going on and on and on and on and on. And then there was a sense of, but if I let go of this, I'll be giving up the cause. And I thought, That's a very interesting voice to hear, that there was something about being identified with the battle that solidified something about myself that I had felt was important. Mm -hmm. And when I saw that, I thought, this is not just about the injustice. This is about what I take myself to be in relationship to it. And so as a result of kind of wrapping my mind around that and being willing to let go of the, the one who engages in battle, then there was a way of finding a way. Well, actually, it's their problem. You know, I can bow. <laughs> if they can't bow, that's their problem. I don't actually need to engage in their problem. You know, mm-hmm. I can find a way of doing this peacefully, mm-hmm. but you know, obviously, that was there was a limitation to how long I could sustain that, where there were more questions that started to ask, you know, arise from it. Mm-hmm. But it was fa- it was fascinating yeah. for me, you know, to see that.
1: What, what strikes me when you talk about that is mm-hmm. um, it it sort of comes right back around to uh, the understanding of equanimity and the the uh, and, and taking equanimity to be its, its near enemy, indifference, yeah. where we believe that if we... I know so many students, when they hear the teachings on equanimity, say, but wait a minute, if I do, if I do that, you know, then you know, I, won't, I won't have you know, the fire anymore, I won't have the passion, I won't have... And, and what they're really talking about is that investing the identity in all of, in all of those things um, in all of those qualities of mind, rather than um, a real understanding of how to approach whatever the issue is, that if we approach the issue from the point of view of compassion or loving kindness or m- indeed mudita, that the results are likely are much more likely they have a much a much more powerful um, charge to them, because kind, love and compassion and joy are, in some ways, I believe, much more powerful than any amount of anger that we can, uh, we can generate, yeah. because anger burns itself out. It's, mm-hmm. so, it's so hot mm-hmm. that it burns itself out, and kindness and, and, uh, and compassion go down to China
2: mm-hmm.
1: in their depth, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, so there's, a, there's always a fear of, if I'm, if I'm equanimous, if I accept the way it is, as you did with the Anjali e- eventually, if I accept that, then something um, key, something really essential will be lost in how I relate to the, in the situation, and I won't be able to be effective.
0: And I think that also connects with that sense of identity. Yes. You know, so there's an unwillingness to enter into what appears to be a groundlessness when one gives up the identity of engaging in battle.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And that unwillingness then keeps the anger looping mm-hmm. because one's not willing
1: to actually dismantle it. And we're not taking, we're not in the at that point, we are so uh, invested in what's going on, on the exter- in the external world yeah. that we miss. What the anger does um, in the internal world. That's right.
0: So we miss doing our own work because yeah. we're actually invested in the cause. Yeah. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I mean, there's no, there's no, um, there's no shortcut. There's no. I mean, we can't fake it when we're not. You know, we can't fake not being angry. <laughs> <laughs> Darn. <laughs> but what we can know is is that when we actually do the work, it mm. pays itself off in gold. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. the actual result of being without anger mm-hmm. is just phenomenal. Mm-hmm. And the level of energy and the amount of commitment that one can bring to
1: something mm-hmm. is just tremendous. Yeah. So some, and somebody else asked the question. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the way it was put was, um, I, when, I, when I'm practicing, I will connect with my breath. And I'm paraphrasing. I'll, I, I'll, I can connect with my breath. And then pretty soon thereafter, I noticed that I'm thinking. And it's a loop, but she sort of drew a little loop in, in her note, you know, showing that it was just going around. And, no, it was a he, I'm sorry. And he, he said um, that he felt as if he wasn't advancing, uh, because it, j- it just seemed to him that all that was happening was that he'd connect with his breath, and then he'd come back to the meditation object. He'd, he'd see the thinking. And then you'd come back to the meditation object, and that didn't feel like uh, onward onward leading. Um, And yet, I think that what we're saying here together is that the simple practice of seeing, of being willing to be present again and again and again and again for this present moment, the simple practice of connecting with this present breath and then connecting with the fact that the mind is thinking and pulling the, bre- pulling the attention away from the breath, that something as simple as that can lead to, the, to this whole opening, this whole awakening to uh, this complex truth of how we act in the world, the motivations from which we act, the intentions from which we act, how they affect the external world, how they affect the internal world. And it's nothing more than that simple act of connecting with the breath, seeing that the attention has been pulled, and coming back. Because it's in that, in that willingness to do that, to come back again and again and again. Uh, in that willingness is uh, the clarification of mind and heart. It's that, that, that presence that clarifies how we see what is true.
0: Mm-hmm. There's a, um, one of the sisters that I have a lot of affection for. She's, she disrobed a couple of years ago. She gave a talk, and in, in the talk she said, you know, the Buddha didn't awaken to how things should be, <laughs> <laughs> he awakened to how things are. Mm. And this sense of, you know, even when our attention is, is, is being taken away from what we had originally intended, that is how it is. Mm-hmm. It's not how it mm-hmm. should be, mm-hmm. but that is how it is. Mm-hmm. And when we awaken to how it is, as you said, and said very exquisitely, we begin to see the mechanisms of what actually uh, entangles
1: us in mm-hmm. the world. Mm-hmm. Feels like a good place to stop, stop. Does it to you? Lovely, yeah. Thank you. Good.
0: So there's a period of um, walking, and we'll meet back in here at nine o'clock for some chanting and some meditation.